say the most deviant mind is often concealed in an unblemished body. Hello, Halo Warlords, and welcome to episode 34 of the Grimdark Podcast. This is James. And this is Mike. If you're listening to us for the first time, we're a podcast devoted to role-playing in the 41st millennium, using the role-playing systems created by Fantasy Flight Games. Each episode, we cover a different system, and tonight we're going to be doing Black Crusade. Before we get into our show, though, let's have a quick talk about what we've been doing in gaming. We had a bit of gaming this last fortnight, including some 40k gaming. Yes. Starting off with, uh, we ran the second session of our Roll20 Dark Heresy 2nd Edition game. Yes. So... At our first combat, Mike, what were your thoughts? Um, well, obviously, it's the first time we've played an actual combat... On Roll20. On, on Roll20 yeah. and with that system. Yep. Well, since actually having a copy of our own sort of thing. I yeah, mean, okay. we, we played a little bit of Gen Con when it first came out. And we played the uh, uh, games during the beta cycle. During yeah. the beta cycle, but I mean, this is the first time we've really got to test it out with whatever we wanted to do. Um, it was a bit of a one-sided combat, because we sort of had surprise for most of the fight. But that said, I think it went quite well, and smoothly considering what we were trying to work with. That's it. I mean, just talking about, for a moment, the Dark Pursuits module, without giving away too much, too many in terms of spoilers, I think that that initial encounter that we did during the uh, the game last well, last week, and also the following encounter, that the, the, we had a meeting, yep. I think that if you read the book, they are... I guess more heavily combat-driven encounters. You can get it. It does say these are ways to deal with it sort of socially, but I think it was good that the group of players that we had were able to role-play well around the circumstances. They role-played into a very advantageous position in the first conflict, yep, and then role-played their way out of a combat situation in the second. So I think it was yep. a good chance to get one to have a play at the 40k universe and sort of learn more about the the setting of Hive Dissolium. Yes, yes. Sort of took some liberties with descriptions there, but you know, certainly if you do enjoy actual play um, sessions on YouTube, please feel free to look us up. We're just looking under Grimdark Podcast and you will find our sessions there. We also post them on our Facebook page and Google Plus page so you can follow us there too. And we look forward to our, our third session. The Friday after that we played Black Crusade. We played our friend Matt's Black Crusade game. Yes. Any thoughts on your part there? Um, I, I think it went very well actually. Yeah, um, it, it was all based around a Nurgle part of our compact. So we had to go off and do some particularly nurgly things, which sort of stuck a little bit for my, my uh, Thousand Sun Sorcerer. But I, I think it went quite well. Yeah, I mean, Matt actually took me aside after the game a few days later and, and asked what I thought of the game and if there anything that I th- thought was missing or wanted changed. And I said to him, no, because I think that the the game style is different from what I'm used to playing. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm pointing out why. And I'm, I'm going to cover that again in our t- discussion topic later on today because it really bleeds into what we're going to be talking about. And I'll, so I'll come back to Matt's game later on. Uh, I also ran my Scion game. Uh, so another uh, different role-playing setting, but still a lot of fun. And uh, I think that I made the comment before that I, I've, I, I tend to give my campaigns names. I, I used to often put them onto uh, Obsidian Portal uh, as a sort of campaign management tool. And when I first created my Scion game, I called it Deophobia. But I decided recently that I would change the name to Go Home Mythology, You're Drunk. Because yes. when you start reading mythology, particularly some of the more off-the-wall ones, like, I don't know, Aztec mythology, uh, it's amazing the weird stuff people came up with back in the... They'll probably look back at our role-playing games and say, how did they come up with this crap, you know? But, yeah. Um, 
anyway, getting off topic there, but another fun game. And the one thing I want to point out as well is that um, I am going back to Gen Con this year. Yes. I managed to you know, convince my employer to put in some airfares for me, so I'll be in the, back in the US again for, for Gen Con. Mike, who has a, a new lady friend. And a has, job. And a job, has his, has commitment to healthcare. Well, you have a job as well, but <laughs> I have a job that actually expects me to turn up and do work. Yeah, my, my job expects me to be in the US, just around the time of Gen Con for some meetings there as well. How so, convenient. Yeah, that's it. Um, but anyway, so I, I'm looking forward to being at Gen Con. Uh, because we're going to Gen Con, or I'm going to Gen Con, we're going to put ourselves in again for... The Any Awards, submit, yep. ourselves, uh, submit our podcast again. So uh, thanks to everyone that supported us last year. What we are going to do is um, we picked out a few favorite episodes, usually ones where we've had guests on the show, either our friends or, or from FFG. And so we'll do a poll on our website in the next couple of weeks where you can give us some guidance on what your favorite episode was for us submitting to the Any, any Committee for, for, uh, for review anyway. So. Yep. Uh, but yeah, no, certainly looking forward to being Gen Con. And this time, I promise I'll make a more concerted effort to establish a get-together for our listeners at Gen Con. Yes. So last year, I think, you know, we were a bit overwhelmed. It was our first time there. Didn't really know when the free times were or where to meet up. But, yeah. you know, we've done it once. We're old hat now, you know. So <laughs> that being said, I think the, um, the the accommodation there is costing me... It's costing me more to stay in Indianapolis for a week than it is to fly there from Australia and back. Yes. So... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's hefty accommodation fees. Well, it's not going to get any better unless they start building some more hotels, which I don't really see happening. That's it, yeah. Anyway, so we're looking forward to Gen Con. So. Uh, anyway, let's get on to tonight's show. As I mentioned before, we are talking about Black Crusade. Uh, we'll do our regular news section. Uh, not much out of FFG, but there is some other interesting news to talk about. Uh, then we're going to be talking about the Black Crusade psychic system, which will lead into our Sorcerer archetype discussion. Mike, I think Sorcerer is one of your favourite yes. things from Black Crusade. Yep. Uh, we'll do our plot hook section. Because we're out of books for Black Crusade to review, tonight we're actually going to be talking about Warhammer 40k Conquest, hence my reference before to Hail Warlords. Uh, then we'll be talking about running an epic campaign, which fits in with uh, our friend Matt's game before as well. We'll do our regular committee section and close out the show. So, Mike, let's jump straight into it. Command acknowledged. Accessing Imperial Archives. Okay, so news-wise, there's been nothing new about the role-playing systems in the last couple of weeks, but... Uh, from FFG, we have seen the release of uh, Gift of the Ethereals for Warhammer Conquest. Yep. So there is a bit of an update there. And uh, I was actually interested to see just today that they've announced that um, XCOM, the board game, is is available now. So that's not nothing to do with 40k, but that's still like very a very interesting take on board gaming. Yeah, it certainly looked interesting. I'd like to see if they, if they can get the system working and the way it goes fine. They might bring it out into other types of board games. And it'd be interesting to see how it goes down. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, Games Workshop news. Um, the last couple of weeks on their website, they've had a whole bunch of stuff about Necrons. So, yeah. obviously, a new Necrons book coming out, lots of new Necron figures. Several new Necron armies were released as, as box sets. But you've also heard about something Harlequins? else. Harlequins. Harlequins, okay. Yeah, we, uh, they haven't had a Harlequin release. Not real Harlequin release in about 10 years. So. As, as an army codex? or how a, As an it? army codex, suge- the suggestions. Um, it'll be a supplement codex, like, you know... Um, Crimson very, Slaughter or yeah, some okay. of the other minor groups. Um, but it'll be interesting, certainly, to see how they go. Yep, okay. Yeah. The other bit of news that really that you pointed out to me that I was just like, oh, this is the best thing ever from Games Workshop is, of course, the announcement that uh, Battlefleet Gothic Armada is coming out for... Did it say platforms? I think it said... Was it consoles and PC? Or? I don't know. 
Okay. It, it didn't really say. Yeah, too much. it was an announcement about a new computer game of Battlefleet Gothic Armada due out in 2016. Yep. It's been developed by Tinderloss Interactive and published by Focus Home Interactive. Yep. So the pictures look great. It reminds me so much of Homeworld. Um, and I think you can probably find, if you look into it, Homeworld reskins people have done with the 40K uh, models as well. But yeah, it looks great. The two things that stuck out for me in the announcement were that it won't be a three-dimensional combat game. It will just be in two dimensions, which fits with the, the board game as well. The board yeah. game sort of re- reduces to, you know, three dimensions to a narrative concept as such. Um, but also that there is playership modification as well. So, you know, the, I guess the concept of modifying Imperial ships doesn't really fit so well with the canon, but I think that players would like to have the ability to, to adjust choose their, their loadout as such, you know. Yeah. I mean, I guess one thing that I noticed looking at the graphics that it sort of... I mean, looking at Battlefleet Gothic as a board game, it looks very skirmishy, but in reality, as you pointed out to me, Mike, when you've got your Battlefleet Gothic figures, the actual size of the ship... It's only supposed to be the very point of the stand as such, and the ship yeah. figure is just a narrative thing to show you what the ship looks like. Yeah, it's just something nice for you to look at. That's it. So ships actually do battle over hundreds of kilometres and such. So the concept of having you know two ships broadside, metres apart, exchanging fire like you know tall ships, not you know looks looks brilliant, you know, but not really what this ha- happens in the setting. Yeah. But I think that's sort of what they've gone for in the computer game here. So oh, the ships shit. passing close by one another, exchanging fire. Yeah, I think it looks definitely looks interesting. The graphics certainly look nice. Um, gameplay, we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, I mean, no, it's still quite a way off. Yeah, certainly looking forward to it. I, mean, I saw that. I was like, shut up and take my money. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, on the Eternal Crusade front, uh, only new thing I saw recently that's probably worth noting is that there was an interview of one of the developers from Behaviour Studios, a gentleman by the name of Miguel Caron, uh, who was interviewed by the Greek gaming site Elysium Gaming. So um, check it out on their on their website. You've got to fight through two sets of accents: the the Greek accent of the hosts and the French Canadian accent of the of the uh, uh, the developer. But you know, it's certainly some good material worth looking into there as well. So yeah. uh, that's it for news. So let's get into the meat of the show. Yes. Knowledge is power. Hide it well. Okay, so on to our Black Crusade content. And for today's system discussion, because we're talking about the Sorcerer later on, I wanted to talk about the Black Crusade Psychic System. Now, we have previously covered Psychic Systems in a couple of episodes. We talked about the Rogue Trader System in Episode 12. We talked about the Death Watch System in Episode 18. So there are similarities here, but I I think, and Mike, correct me if you think this is wrong, I think the Psychic System in Black Crusade is the most, um, I guess, developed system with the most content and the most options available to... The players basically because they are the characters are so close to the warp anyway. Yeah, I think that's, that's a pretty accurate description. And there's a couple of things I liked about the Only War system, which they didn't put into this one because obviously Only War came out later. Yeah, and I like a couple of the minor changes they did in Dark Heresy Second, Second Edition. Edition. Yeah. Um, but as a whole, for the original run, I think the Black Crusade system was probably the best one. All right. Well, let's break it down into the components, basically. So the first and most important part of a psychic character is the psi rating. Yes. Which basically determines how powerful they are. Now, the starting rating out of the main book is two for Chaos Sorcerers and three for Chaos Psychers. Yes. Now, and there is a maximum rating as well. Yes. What, what the, what's the max rating here? The maximum rating is equal to your willpower bonus plus your corruption bonus. Okay. So it, it's once again tied to corruption there. So. Yeah. Um, and it's fluid as well as it goes it up. It is fluid, yeah. So, you know, you can't start off with really high 
Psy rating unless you're willing to get really corrupt. That's it. Or have a really high willpower. Now, just oh, I didn't look it up actually, but like the Thousand Sun Sorcerer, are they still two? They start off at three. Okay. And the uh, Magister Immaterium yep. uh, from Quasar uh, starts off at four, which okay. is the highest anyone starts at. Okay, well, that's significant as well. So yeah, yeah. That certainly is. Okay, now, uh, as before, we've had uh, the different types of psychers. So we've had bound and unbound psychers. Yep. It's expanded a bit further here. So bound psychers here covers Chaos Space Marines. They're actually bound. Yes. Along with, obviously, Imperial forces like Librarians and, and Sanctioned Psychers. Uh, so my, what do you think of the decision to make Chaos Space Marines bound? Um, I think it's a good one because the, the way they've described it is essentially that being bound doesn't mean necessarily you're bound to an entity. Yep. It means that you are trained how to use your powers without frying your own brains instantly. They've been trained not to kill themselves straight away. They know what they're doing. And I think that that's a fair distinction to make because, I mean, Chaos Space means they have a long life ahead of them. Um, yes, there are fatalistic ones which go out in a blaze of glory, but it is a lot less likely because, you know, generally speaking, Chaos Sorcerers and any Chaos Follower is somewhat selfish and in it for the long term. Yeah, that's true. But, I mean, there's also the fact that with the reduced risk of being bound, there are some reduced rewards, which we'll cover in a second. So yeah. the fact that the Chaos Sorcerer loses out on both starting Psy rating and also being bound, is that, do you see that as a problem at all? Or you, you, you'd like that that's where they brought it to? Um, I like where that's where they brought it to, because otherwise, why would you be a human psych when you can be a Chaos Space Marine psych? I mean, at the end of the day, a Chaos Space Marine can do anything a human can do just better. Well, I guess the question is, why would you play, say, a Renegade when you could play a Chosen? I mean, I guess people don't know who wants to play Chaos Space Marines. Well, like. maybe not. Some, but... some some players may want to play female characters, for example. And, you know, that's a bit harder to do with a Chaos Space Marine unless you're a Sinesh worshipper. <laughs> who takes there, a are muta- there are mutations that can fix that. <laughs> um, no, I, I suppose what I mean is you need to limit it on a power level. You can't have two characters, one playing a Sorcerer, one playing a Psyker, and have the sorcerer just be able to do everything that the psychic can do, but better. That's true. Yeah. And more often, and without any danger. It just kind of defeats the purpose a little bit. That's it. Okay, so we mentioned Bound there. Next up is Unbound, which is basically Renegade Psychers, and it also calls out mortal sorcerers here. Yeah. So, Sorcerers of Chaos, as distinct from Psychers, in the fluff, Mike, from your point of view. From the fluff, I don't think they've ever really got this right in any of the systems, but... I suppose the easiest way to put it is, for this system, there is no difference between a sorcerer and a psyker. You know, if you're a sorcerer, you use the psychic system, you do everything the same way a normal psyker would do it. And that's it. And I think that, from a fluff point of view, it does a little bit of a disservice. From a rules point of view, it makes it a lot easier than having to juggle around with a second set of systems, like from Radical's Handbook, or um, I think it was Purge Unclean. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, it, it just wasn't a, a fluid system. Yeah. It felt tacked on. Oh, uh, sorry, Disciples of the Dark Gods, I think. Disciples yeah, of the Dark Gods, yeah. that's the one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, and now the third type that's been added for Black Crusade is Demonic. Yeah. And this one covers psychic demons, demon hosts, and demon princes. Yeah. So in previous systems, um, demons just covers Unbound, basically. But now you've got a specific one that is just for demons as well. Yeah. Makes them... Once again, they have a different sort of power level and some different benefits, actually, as well. So Vastly more powerful than anyone else, but you'd kind of expect that a being made out of the pure warp 
probably would be able to wield the warp a lot more effectively. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the main thing that the demonic ones get is immunity from psychic phenomena. Like, they still cause them, but they are not affected by it unless they trigger perils of the warp. Yeah. So, that could be quite a... I, I suppose a demon's not too concerned if everybody around them momentarily sees the warp, because they see the warp every day. Yeah. Who cares? Um, all right, so you've got your psycho, you've got your level of binding, and when it comes to actually using a psychic power, you've then got your psychic strength, which has existed in previous settings, but we'll go through it again here. So the first type is fettered. This is you are deliberately holding back your power in order to reduce the risks associated. Now, demonic can't do this. No. You know, they, they, they can't choose to use anything but at least their full power, basically. Yeah. Uh, but for unbound and bound psychers, you've got you divide your psi rating by two, and the payoff is no chance of a psychic phenomenon. So effectively, by reducing a side rating by two, you've, you've reduced your chance of actually focusing the power. And in a lot of cases, you will have reduced the actual power's effectiveness, like things like its range, its damage. Absolutely. Come up. And also the fact that there are several talents you can get, which affect your psychic rating. Yes. And you can't use those when you're casting Fettered. That's right. So, you know, you can't, you know, surreptitiously chant blasphemous incantations and scream out for the dark gods while, you know, only just using a little bit of power. Yeah, that's it. And doesn't it, work. And there are also some powers I think you can't use fetid as well. That yeah. Designed, they, are, they are heavily powerful overt powers that you just have to throw it all into. Yeah. Okay, so next type is your standard, which is unfettered, where you basically use your side rating. You only trigger a phenomena when you roll doubles. Uh, and when a phenomena is triggered, unbound and demonic characters add... Plus 10 to the actual phenomenon roll as well. Yeah. Um, once again, though, demon, d- demonic creatures aren't affected by the results that unless it's perils of the war. Uh, next up, you've got push. And this yes. is where your character is actually trying to throw all their power into it. And, and it's probably more than they can actually do. That's right, yeah. And this one's on a sliding scale. So this is where you start to see the slight benefit of being unbound, benefit and risk as well. So let's go through them. So first off, bound psychers can add up to plus three psi rating. They can choose one, two, or three. Yeah, so a sorcerer with starting psi rating of two could push up to psi rating five into an effect. Yeah, that's right. And the only drawback is that if they do, well, first of all, they do automatically trigger off an honor, and they add plus ten to the roll. Yeah. Okay, but between going for one, two, or three, there's no additional drawbacks as such. You just choose how much you want to throw into it. Um, when it comes to unbound psychers... They can add up to 5 PR, and they actually add plus 5 to their uh, phenomena roll per PR they increase. Yep. So if they add 5 side rating, they add plus 25 to their roll. Yep. If they only add 1, they add plus 5 to the roll. And, and this is where some of those other talents come into play, because you've got things like Child of the Warp, which when you push, you add an additional plus 1 on top of everything. Yes. And you've got Blasphemous Incantations, when you push, you add an additional plus 1 on top of everything. You know, so you're starting to get out that a starting sorcerer, if they happen to have Blasphemous Incantations and um, Child of the Warp, which they can start with... Can hit that, that cap for... Can them. hit 10 Psy ratings straight up out of the gate. Yeah. Which it. will probably kill them, because that's going to be, you know, obviously a, a Perils of the... Uh, almost guarantee a Perils of the Warp roll, and something really bad is going to happen. Yeah. So the interesting thing I found here is, so a, a Bound Psyker who pushes one PR, uh, or one side rating, gets a, pl- gets a roll at plus 10. An unbound psyker who pushes for just one, gets a roll at plus 5. 
Yeah. So, you know, effectively they've got that little bit of edge there, plus the fact they can also go even further to the plus four and plus five. I don't know why a, a bounce cycle wouldn't go straight to three. It's plus ten either way. Yeah. But, you know, I guess the options are there. Or, or maybe you've got to you hit the cap as well. Yeah. Um, now, Demonic can add up to four side rating, but they add plus ten per per uh, to their phenomenal roll per side uh, rating increase. Yeah. So if they go for the full four PR, they're only plus 40 off the bat. You know, once again, not affected by the results unless it's a Pearl of the Warp, which it's probably going to be. You know, the, the odds are yeah, 35 or above, you're going to have 40, 30, 36 or above it with plus 40, you'll hit Perils of the Warp. Yeah, well, I so. suppose the way they're looking at it is a demon, when they're pushing, is channeling pure warp through their being into the realm. They could well t- open up a rift very easily. I mean, that's what demons do. That's so it. it makes sense that it would be highly likely to cause that sort of effect. Yeah. Now, sustaining psychic powers is just covered by you reduce your star rating by one. Yep. And if you do trigger phenomenon rolls, you have plus 10 for the powers that you are sustaining. That's correct. This is cumulative, yes, is it? Yes, yeah, it is. It. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, if you're always using your powers at a fettered rating, um, you could probably have two sustained powers and never really worry about phenomena, but none of them are going to be very powerful. That's it. Okay, so we've mentioned here a few times these special paths to power. Most of these are driven by, tra- uh, by talents. Yep. So the one we'll start off with is... Blasphemous incantation. You mentioned it before. Um, you basically scream and shout and do whatever else is required to attract the interest of the gods in order to draw more power into your effect. So what it does is it gives you plus one psi rating to the focus power test only. It doesn't actually affect things like the range, the damage and such. It's just for the purpose of actually getting the power to go off. All right? And the drawback to this is that it adds a half action to the time it takes to use the power because you need extra half action to scream and shout which also means you can't use it on reaction powers because you just don't have time to scream and shout before your bullet hits you (laughs) exactly Um, and uh, it adds plus 20 on phenomena tests and if you roll the 91 above which is normally an automatic failure you also automatically cause a peril of the warp so you know risks versus it's 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 hard to see that the plus 1 which basically translates to plus 5% chance to pull off the power is really worth the risk of perils of the warp on 91 or above and plus 20 on phenomena tests. It depends how low your psi rating is to start. That's true. If yeah. you've only got psi rating through... Something like Mark of Zinch, and yeah. you've got psi rating of 1, yeah. um, that plus 1 psi rating is actually quite a boom. Yes. So it depends how powerful you are as to whether this is worth taking. That's it. Uh, Alright, next one is uh, Corpus Conversion, which I know is one of your sort of bugbears, Mike, with your sorcerer character. Yeah. So, once again, it's a talent. You may add up to your toughness bonus in degrees of success to the focus power roll, uh, but each degree that you add deals you 1d10 toughness damage. And the key thing here is that this talent cannot be taken by Chaos Space Marines. Actually, if you have a look, it specifically says can only be taken by human sites. Yeah. So demons can't even do it. But later on, it does clarify in the uh, time of Nurgle that a demon prince of, Slen- of Nurgle yes. can take this, but it doesn't make mention of any others being able to take it. So uh, okay. as far as I'm aware, if you're a human sorcerer, you can take this. If you're a demon prince of Nurgle, you can take this. Anyone else, you're out of luck. Yeah, see, when I was studying for this episode, as I do, uh, I, you know, I was reading the section on corpus conversion in the psychic section, and I remember we talked about the fact that you couldn't take it as a Chaos Space Marine, and it said that Chaos Space Marines can't 
use this power because the metabolic controls they have prevent them from basically opening up their, their mind to this much power as such. And I thought, I don't know, as a GM, I might say you can buy the power in order to qualify for other, other traits like, we'll come back to a moment, your favourite, um, but you just can't use the power. But then when you actually go to the talent section in the book, it actually says human only. Yes. In the book, yeah. So, and Mike, going into, so there is one power that you there, need there is, conversion for. Yeah, there's a, there's a zinc power, power yep. which essentially lets you shapeshift into any sort of shimmera or horrific entity, and it's got massive amount of requirements. You know, corruption 50, willpower 60, toughness 50, all sorts of things out of, out of the ballpark. And it requires and corpus conversion. requires corpus conversion as well. But that aside, the main problem I have with corpus conversion is the power level. Yeah. Up to your toughness bonus in degrees of success is huge because yeah. it's direct degrees of success. And I mean, some powers, that means that you're always going to win if you're willing to take a couple of D10 damage. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the main thing here is that it's not so good for a low-level psyker because you need to succeed first yep. in order to add the degrees of success. If you're you've only got you know one a one PR and you know a low willpower bonus you know, or low willpower in general, you're going to have a hard time getting that power well, off. Well, this is the thing because it's degrees of success. It its best advantage is actually in telepathy powers, yeah. where they've got an easy challenge rate to pass anyway. You know, you're rolling with a plus ten bonus to pass your roll. You know, you, you burn your arm a bit with the forces of cut of chaos power into your body yes. and you make the person you're targeting shoot themselves in the head because they can't possibly get enough willpower successes <laughs> to defeat you yeah. I mean it, that makes it powerful yeah okay yeah uh, alright so let's move on from there so the next one is profane symbols now I couldn't see this one there's no actual talent, talent required, for this one so yeah. anyone could presumably do this one basically yeah. and this is that you effectively mark either a person you know and it has to be it specifies an ally so you, you mark an ally, and then you can then use a power, or normally have a range of self, on that ally. Yeah. Um, and uh, also you can mark a location and use a, uh, a power that would be a radius sent on you to instead be sent on that location as well. Yep. So a couple of things it does. First off, you take a minus 20 on the focus power test, or sorry, minus 10 for marking an ally, minus 20 for marking a location. Okay. Yep. Um, also, it takes six full rounds to manifest the, the actual power. Yeah. So, would you say, Mike, that includes the act of marking, or would you say that once you've actually marked something, now you've got six I'd rounds? I'd say of... probably the six rounds includes the act of marking the person up. Yeah, okay. Because that takes the person you're marking up out of the combat for six rounds as well, because they can't go running off if you're dabbing them with blood <laughs> and painting things all over their armour. Um, the, the main thing to remember is, with this sort of thing, you're going to be... Probably, if it's a self-affecting power, you're yep. going to want to have something with a sustainability, and you're going to do it before a very big fight. So, if you're not a very good combatant, and you happen to have a time warp, yep. you know, cast it on someone who is a good combatant, who will allow you to use it, and let them reap the benefits. Now, this interesting point that I saw in the book here, it says, the recipient must spend the actions... To sustain the power's effect. Yep. So all other effects to sustain the power affect the sorcerer, i.e. the minus one PR. What actions are involved in sustaining a power? Well, some powers have a sustain requirement, like it might take a half action just to keep the power running. Okay, and so the recipient has to use that. So the recipient has to burn half an action every round to keep the power going. Um, for some powers, 
that's going to be a bit of a problem. For other powers, they're free actions or, you know, negligible effect. All right. All right. Okay, so next part of the power is sacrifice. And here we are back to requiring a talent. Yep. So uh, it means you need a human or intelligent Xenos as a, as a sacrificial victim. Uh, you make a forbidden law, the warp test, at a minus 10 penalty and spend 2d5 minutes preparing the victim. After that, it just takes a full round action to slay the victim, uh, which then gives you a plus five on the focus power test for every degree of success on the Fibrinol or the warp test. And any psychic phenomena or perils generated, instead just destroy the body and deal 1d10 damage to anyone within three meters of the body. Yeah. So... Okay, right. I suppose the main reason you're going to do this is yep. if you're going to push the hell out of the power and you're worried about generating an instant perils of the warp. Yeah. You know, taking 1d10 damage is nothing compared to getting sucked into the warp and eaten by a demon. So if it's a power that you definitely want to be able to use, this is the way to go. And also, I'd probably say it doesn't specifically mention it, but for ritual powers to summon demons or bind demon weapons yeah use this as well okay yeah get the talent for it yeah get the talent for maybe, it. maybe along with betrayer as well so you've got you yeah. can do it to your own people too yeah <laughs> in a pinch use a minion and, and speaking of minions that last one we mentioned profane symbols yes if you've got a minion who's a psyker that is definitely worthwhile taking if you're not you know if you've got a psychic minion have them dab you with symbols and cast their powers through you okay nice uh, and the last thing to mention here is just the unnatural willpower trait, which has its usual effect. It, it, you know, your, psych, your focus power test is a characteristic test, and therefore you can add degree success equal to your um, uh, unnatural half, willpower. Half your unnatural willpower, yeah. That's it, yeah. 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 So. And the other added bonus with unnatural willpower, that because it's increasing your willpower bonus, you can have a higher psi rating before you get capped. That's it. Now, who, how's, how are you going to get unnatural willpower, though? I guess, does Mark of Zinch give it Mark to you? Mark of Zinch gives you unnatural willpower. Yeah. Um, Thousand Sun Sorcerers start with unnatural willpower, too, but it does not affect their maximum psi rating. Okay. And uh, you can get it through a couple of Chaos Gifts as well, like um, Chaos Organ can give you an unnatural stat of your choice, and you might okay. choose willpower for a demon brain or tongue or eye or something which lets you affect the warp. Whatever, okay. you, whatever excuse you can come up with as to why it's helping you affect the warp, yep. go for it. Yeah, my excuse is the warp. That's <laughs> it. Uh, all right, so we've gone through all these paths to power. So, you, you know, you've worked out the next thing's going to do. You've worked out the power level. Next thing is the actual focus power test. Yeah. And this is the role to see, does the actual power go off? Now, it normally is a willpower test. Yep. But sometimes it will be off things like corruption. Yep. Or other abilities. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about corruption one, corruption powers separately in a little bit. Yep. But, um, yeah, I mean, most of them are willpower. Yep. Some of the divination powers are off of Cynescience or Perception. That's it. And it is important to note that some of them are off of Perception, not Cynescience. Yeah. Um, generally, the best ones are off of uh, Perception. That's it. Okay, so, and you get a plus five on this roll for every Psy rating that you've accumulated. Yep. Plus any other bonuses from the past the power that we've used as well. Yes. Uh, now, a 91 or above always fails. So this is different from the regular rule. Uh, you know, here it's saying there's basically a 10% chance you will always automatically fail. fail. Yeah. That's it. Um, and as before, depending on your power level, either you might get a psychic phenomena from double or from automatically. Now, sometimes this power is opposed, particularly in powers affecting someone else's mind. 
uh, in which case they make the opposed roll using normal rules. Yes. Um, but always remember that failure can still generate a phenomena. Yes. So even if they've resisted it, even if you've rolled above 91, that double or that automatic... Yeah, if you roll 99, yeah. not only have you automatically failed, you've also caused a, a psychic phenomena of exactly some kind. Right. And psychic phenomena are cumulative. It's yes. possible to trigger more than one. <laughs> okay, well, speaking of cumulative, uh, one of the key points that calls out here is that whenever you use multiple psychic abilities that generate some sort of bonus, bonus wounds, you know, bonus to a stat, bonus to a skill, uh, they are not cumulative. No. You always use the highest result generated. That's so right. if you've got plus six wounds and you suddenly get an additional plus four wounds, no, you stay with your plus six wounds. Yeah. That, that's the highest. Yeah, I, I mean, probably the be- easiest example of that is there's a slanesh power which grants you unnatural uh, agility. Yep. And there's time warp which grants you unnatural agility. Yep. So obviously you just choose whichever one's better. Exactly right. Uh, okay, so there's a couple of other things to look at. Uh, some psychic powers are deemed to be attack powers. Yeah. And I quite like what they did with Black Crusader where they brought the system out where you've got uh, a psychic barrage. So, so first off, a psychic bolt is treated as a standard ranged attack, basically. It can be dodged, etc. Uh, a psychic barrage follows all the same rules as a semi-automatic attack, i.e. every two degrees success is an additional hit. Yep. Um, a psychic storm is treated as a full auto attack, so every degree of success is an extra hit. And a psychic blast is treated as a blast weapon with, yep. the, with the area effect quality, basically. Yep. So very nice refinement of those rules into utilising the same oh, system. definitely. And he also, he also discusses the fact of how do people dodge against it and all that sort of thing as well. So it cleans it up a lot. Yeah. Definitely cleans it up a lot. Because there used to be a lot of confusion, especially with the original Dark Heresy. Can you dodge a lightning bolt? You know? Yeah. And, and you can, essentially. Yeah. All right, now you want to talk about corruption powers. Yes. So corruption powers are a little bit different from... Normal psychic powers. For a start, they require a corruption test rather than a willpower test. Yep. You need to have a certain corruption level to buy the corruption power. And if you trigger a peril of the warp with a corruption power, it has an additional effect on top of whatever the effect is normally. Yes. And lastly, you can never use a corruption power fettered. Yes. You're unleashing your inner corruption. You can't do that in a subtle way. Also, you can't use that with incantations or sacrifice. No. Yeah, yeah, so you, it, you can use corpus conversion, profane yeah. symbols, etc. But yeah, you just you just cannot channel your power through something else, basically. No, it's because it's the power within you. If there's no corruption inside your sacrificial victim, there's no corruption to channel. That's it. Uh, now, powers in Black Crusade have an alignment as well. So you'll see yes. there's, there's there's unaligned powers, there are aligned powers, and there are also exalted powers. Yeah. So when you buy an aligned power, this counts as an advance towards that alignment. Yep. which is very handy for those Nurgle psychers who are worried about too many steps towards each on the other side because each Nurgle power that you buy effectively keeps you one step along that path. And, and this comes back to what we talked about in the past with really planning out your character in Black Crusade to ensure that you don't tread too far down another path as such. Yeah. Um, now, an aligned power can only be used when you have that alignment. You can still own the power. You can still know the power. You know, you can start off, you can get aligned, learn a power, then lose that alignment and just not be able to use the power until you get back aligned again. Yeah. But you do need to be aligned in order to use that power. Now, exalted powers, would you say they're the most powerful powers in the game or? Um, kinda, almost. Okay. I mean, they're, they're 
I consider them refinements on powers that you may already have. So, for example, I mentioned Time Warp a couple of times. There's one called Shatter Time, which is a, sounds like a terrible punchline to a joke. Um, that one is essentially like Time Warp, but with an additional ability as well on top. Yeah. Okay, so th- they're refinements on powers that you may already have. They're more of a benefit for sorcerers who've decided they specifically do not wish to become aligned. And that's it, because you can only use an exalted power while you remain unaligned. Yes. So you've got to sort of tread that careful path down the middle in order to ensure that you stay that way. Because five steps in any direction, and your exalted powers are useless. Yeah, and, exp- and... An expensive waste of points. Exalted powers are very expensive. Yes. I mean, I suppose... Yes, they have. There is one or there are one or two which are very, very powerful. Possibly the most powerful in the game, but they're upwards of fifteen hundred XP each. Yeah, I mean that's a lot of XP to lose just simply by becoming aligned. All right. So there's a few things I want to talk about when it comes to specific powers. Just some considerations. Some things that I noted that like. First thing, I really like the fact that a lot of the powers have alternate names. Yeah, you know, it goes back to my days of playing Call of Cthulhu, where you know you don't just want to give players are things saying you've got a scroll of summon biaki you know it's like no you've got a scroll of summon forth the winged demon you know um yeah. this concept that you know cultists and, and true believers have different names and archetypes and and power words and gods that they call to as such i quite like that feature of the powers yeah uh the purchasing system you know every power has its own cost now this is one thing i noted and if correct me if i'm wrong here mike but the power costs aren't affected by your alignment Nah, like no, everything else. There's not no, at all. There's no true you know, oppose, etc. If you meet the requirements and you've got the XP to spend, you can buy them. Interesting, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of them have prerequisites. Like you mentioned, some have prerequisites of corruption. A lot of them have traits. Um, stats. stats. Some have skills like Sinusians, for example, at various levels. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the other thing, as you mentioned before, with some corruption powers, is there are actually specific results called out for psychic phenomena. Uh, result you know, on the on the particular uh, yeah. power. So, for example, the uh, stream of corruption type power, yep. uh, breath of chaos, I think it is, has an additional effect dependent on what god you follow, and that effect takes into effect as well. Yeah, as you can see, it's a very heavily developed psychic power system, and, and I guess what really adds to it in Black Crusade is all these extra things like sacrificing victims and blasphemous incantations and profane symbols, all these things that basically add that real sort of, I'm not a nice guy and this is not a nice thing I'm trying to do yeah. to, uh, to the table. Or oh, it certainly adds a lot of thematic ideas to the game and you can certainly make a lot of, lot, lot of good role-playing choices for it. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, now, there's a lot more to this like, system, including things like rites, rituals and summoning demons. I figure it's so much, I want to save those things for a future show as well. Yeah, you know? I think so. I think rituals in particular deserve their own their own section. So yeah. we'll talk about that a little later on. All right, anything else you wanted to cover off about the psychic system? Being, you, you're the person in this room who's used the most um, of the Black Crusade psychic system. Don't always push just because you can. I suppose that's <laughs> the only bit of advice I can really add. And if you're a GM, be aware that sometimes players will have powers which can completely derail your, your, your choice. Yes. You know, if someone can move at 100 metres in three seconds... That can certainly put a lot of dampeners on the yeah, bad guy runs yeah, away. That's it, yeah. So, so keep in mind what powers they have and think about, well, I need to put something in place which will stop them from derailing a plot device I've put in place here. I don't want something I've created to maybe, you know, a huge alternate timeline changing yeah, thing okay. yeah. that they can just buy, you know, 
sidestepped with, with one it. power. He runs off leaving caltrops on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And I guess if I can give one piece of advice, you know, it is remember this is Black Crusade. Always push just because you can. <laughs> Let's move on to the next bit. All subsequents report to the administrator for career assignment. Right, so just before we get into this next section, I just realised something before as well. We completely missed one of our gaming things in the last fortnight. What was that? We tried 5th Ed D&D for the first time. Oh, uh, yes, that's right. We yeah. did too. We, we got together and character creation took a lot longer than I expected. So yes. we ended up playing for maybe an hour and a half of actual Even though gaming. you skipped the talent system, I think. Uh, the talent system? Yeah, we don't have any talents. The, oh, the oh, feet, feet system. system. No, well, that's... I'm not going to sit here and explain feats to you in, in D&D 5th edition in a, dark, in a Black Crusade show. Yeah. Off air, I will explain to you why you're wrong. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, didn't oh, skip, I didn't skip anything. why I'm wrong. That's it, yeah. Okay. Uh, we, don't, we just don't have time. There's not enough internet for how, how wrong you are on this show. So. <laughs> okay, sorry. Okay, so let's get on to our career discussion. Uh, and as you mentioned before, we're talking about the sorcerer archetype. Yeah. So the first thing we do is talk about the role of the sorcerer in the Screaming Vortex. And what more can I say then? You're a psychic chaos space marine. You know, I mean, and all that entails. Yes. <laughs> it's, I mean, is there anything else you can say about what the purpose of what their purpose for being is? Um, I, I suppose several things. First of all, there are very few navigators belonging to the chaos, belonging to chaos anymore. Yeah. There are some, but they're probably so horribly mutated. You, they're not going to be leaving anywhere in any time soon. Yeah. So as a result. A lot of chaos sorcerers act as navigators on ships. Um, probably as astropaths as well. And as astropaths, because, again, any astropaths are human. They've probably mutated into nothing by now. Yep. Um, and also for summoning rituals. Sorcerers are generally better at summoning things and knowing the rituals than a random guy. So they tend to cast a lot of rituals to summon demons. That's it. I mean, most chaos space marines, especially if you do things like take the ancient warrior talent, have been everywhere and seen a lot. Yeah. Um, so, you know, therefore it's a, a good way of ex- you know, excusing the amount of information that you bring to the table as a, as a player. It's interesting, actually, I thought, I want to say here about your character in Matt's game. So you've made a Thousand Sun Sorcerer, and you've got, so it's got the Ancient Warrior traits, you've been around literally since the Horus Heresy, uh, yet you come up with a concept for why your character has a level of stats equivalent to any other starting character. What, what was that? Um, essentially, he's been using rituals to lock away his memories so that he doesn't go insane from knowing 10,000 years' worth of knowledge. Um, and, well, they're locked away at the moment. Yeah, Ritual so, hasn't gone quite right, and he doesn't remember everything. So when you spend experience points to acquire new skills, it could, it could easily either be new development or just unlocking original talents you have. Yeah, yeah. Un- unlocking memories is, is it just seemed like an easier way of explaining why this Chaos Sorcerer who's... You know, up with, up to ten thousand years old, he, he isn't. But you know, why he doesn't know ten thousand XP worth of stuff? Yeah, I, I thought that was an interesting take on it. Anyway, yeah. all right. So let's talk about sorcerers of the ruinous powers. And I think Mike, you would agree that the most common one is going to be the sorcerer of Zinch. Yeah. So tell us about the sorcerer of Zinch. Uh, Zinch obviously is the patron of sorcerers. Tends to attract a lot of sorcerers to his employ. Um, if I suppose if you, any chaos sorcerer who starts delving into their powers at the expense of other things and starts playing around with conundrums and rituals and delving into forbidden laws, he's going to eventually slide into the worship of Zinch yeah. because that, they're his main purviews. Okay. Um, now, sorcerer of Slanesh. I, I guess the main thing you've got here is the 
sort of character who who may focus on a lot of those mind powers, yep. telepathy powers, etc., in order to control people around them and yep. get what it is, it is they desire. Well, they may use that worship of, of Slanesh and their psychic powers to achieve a level of perfection, either yeah, yeah. a psychic mastery or using that psychic mastery to enhance their martial skills. Or yeah, yeah. Like there's, there's certainly biomancy, you know, discipline. They can certainly start perfecting their their looks through the use of psychic. That's right, yeah. What, 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 is it, what, is it, what, is it, what was it called in the old second ed DD? Psychometabolicism. That's yes, right. that's the one. <laughs> it's biomancy sounds so much more friendly, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, what about Mike, a sorcerer of Nurgle? Um, Sorcerers of Nurgle generally, I, I suppose the best way to describe Sorcerer of Nurgle is someone who taps into Nurgle's power to bring it directly into the real world. So they're channeling Nurgle's warp essence into the real world. So bringing diseases, plagues, all that sort of stuff into the, into That's it. And well, every, every, everyone's everyday life. As you mentioned before, certainly a difficult concept to play because of managing the fact that things like psi rating... Oh. It runs off. Cyrene so, isn't zinch aligned. Oh, it's, un- but it's unaligned, sorry, but um, willpower. The willpower. Willpower status. is yeah. zinch aligned. Yeah. And forbidden laws. Forbidden laws is zinch aligned. Somniscience. Somniscience, yeah. Yeah, that's it. So, it's going yeah. to make, make it a little bit more difficult. As we said though before, Nurgle based powers will help keep you aligned. So. And the Nurgle power, some of them are very powerful. A lot of them require toughness. Toughness is a Nurgle trait as well. So, yeah. you know, if, you, if you're clever, you manage it, you won't have a problem at all. Yep. What about the psycho, Sorcerer of Corn, Mike? You know, okay. Very powerful character here. You know? um, uh, it, I like the fact that it specifically mentions in the book yep. that a sorcerer dedicated, who eventually becomes dedicated to Corn loses all access to their psychic powers. Yes. Now, that's not necessarily a bad character concept because one thing they do still have is all the knowledge of their psychic powers. Yep. The, the knowledge of what a psycho can or can't do. You could certainly build a character... You know, you could say to the GM, I'm making a, a renegade of corn or an apostate of corn. I want my character to have previously been a psyker, yep. but I've lost that trait now because I've become corn aligned. But I still want to take things like Forbidden Law, the warp, you know, and, and know all about yeah, because I, I've seen the I've seen the light of corn, <laughs> yeah, and I you know I've given up my my witchly ways. Yeah, I mean, I like the fact actually that in the time of decay, yep. under the Demon Prince setting, it's you know, all the rules there involved, yeah. it specifically says that a former sorcerer who somehow manages to become a demon prince of corn loses the psycho trait. Okay. And that is the only way to lose the psycho trait. So while they're aligned to corn, they're still a psycho. They just can't use their powers. Yeah. I, I still I'll harken back to the audio book I listened to ages ago where uh, there was a Cornish, ar- Cornish ar- a Cornate army facing another army, I think another Chaos army, and there was like um, psychic powers coming out of the the Cornate army's sort of command hill as such, you know, and they're wondering how the hell are uh, these, you know, Cornate warriors using psychic powers? And they basically had a uh, a, a psyker in a, in a gibbet, you know, and, and the, the Chaos Lord would basically just poke him with a, with a power sword every time he wanted him to actually use a psychic power on, on the opposing forces before he finally killed him for the glory of corn at the end. So, yep. yeah, I, I quite like that concept. Is it, you know, they're not above using psychers, you know, provided they are appropriately sacrificed to the, to the blood god afterwards. Yep. Uh, all right, so let's talk about building a sorcerer. Uh, same with characteristics. With any psychic character, willpower, probably your best stat to start off with. Yes. Um, I think that... Uh, Depending on the sort of psyche you want to play, toughness may come into it. A lot of powers do have a toughness requirement, especially from Nurgle. Yep. Uh, as you get into some of the ones that affect the body as such. 
Uh, intelligence, I think, you know, a lot of that, they, they benefit from law skills, they benefit from just a lot more sort of education and understanding. Perception, I think, is probably one that it's worth looking at. And lastly, corruption. You know, this is going to be the first character I'm going to say, you, you actually benefit from having a high corruption. Because you can access your corruption powers. That's it, yeah. And you cast them better. Yeah, I, I think for characteristics, it's important to realise that it depends a lot on what sort of powers you're going to use. If you're going to be using a lot of divination powers... Obviously, perception is going to be quite important because they run off perception or cynescience. Yeah. If you're going for um, bio powers, toughness, toughness, yeah. obviously, agility in some cases, agility. Yeah. And if you're a follower of Slanesh, you're going to want agility and perception because a lot of their powers require high agility and perception, and some require fellowship as well. If you want a combat ability, and don't forget, you are a cow space marine. Uh, probably weapon skill over ballistic skill only because Absolutely. of things like force weapons force yeah, weapons may mean and at the end of the day if you've got a choice between a doom bolt and a bolt gun the doom bolt's yeah. somewhat better because you don't have to reload it yeah maybe maybe you can find a way to port psy cannons into Black Crusade for your uh, for your psychic for your psychic sorcerer with ballistic oh. skill <laughs> just kill a green knight and take his psy cannon oh yeah, yeah. yeah. it's that easy <laughs> Uh, Alright, so skills. Uh, there's probably a lot of skills that are particularly... This is a sorcerer must have. Definitely Sinusians. Yeah. Um, definitely Forbidden Laws. Particularly the Warp, especially if you want to use Sacrifice. Uh, and of course, any law skills in general, I think, will benefit Psychers yeah. too. But otherwise, it comes down to what you want to use. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're going to be weapon skill-oriented, parry. Yeah. If you're going to be trying to do telepathy stuff to change people's minds, charm, deceive, command, that sort of stuff. Uh, it depends a lot on what you're going to be doing. Yep. Right. Uh, okay, looking at talents. First one I put down here was Ancient Warrior. Now, you're a Chaos Space Marine. You, you know, anyone can take Ancient Warrior, but I think that it's cool to have a Chaos Space Marine from the time of the Horus Heresy. Uh, Thousand Sun Sorcerers get it automatically. Uh, I think that Sorcerers present some interesting opportunities for role-playing when you take an Ancient Warrior. And I'll come back to why a bit later on. It comes back to the nature of sorcerers during the Horus Heresy. Yeah. Uh, okay, so Bastion of Iron Will. I think that what I've observed in games is that when you've got a psychic villain, that psychic players tend to feel it's their responsibility to attack them. You know, So it's almost like when you're the person with the psychic powers, you then naturally become the target of other people with psychic, psychic powers. Yeah. powers. Also because... Most GMs aren't jerks and use their high-powered psychers with 80 willpower to use powers on your 20 willpower, you know, coordinate uh, berserker as such, you know, to make him attack his friends. Uh, you can. There's certainly <laughs> nothing to stop you, and it would certainly make sense to do so. Um, but yeah, so certain things like... So Bastion Will, for example, lets you add five times your psi rating um, when you're defending against psychic techniques, for example. And also... Against Sinisians roles. Yes. Which is actually quite important because if you're sneaking around in the Imperium, which is difficult for a Chaos Sorcerer, yes. being a Space Marine, um, obviously if you use a power to, say, mask your presence and make you look like a normal person, having it that everyone who's psychic themselves with Sinisians doesn't instantly notice that you're doing it is a big advantage. That's it. Uh, Blasphemous Incantation, which you need for the to use that ability before for the power of the uh, the technique. Yep. Uh, you mentioned before Child of the Warp. lets yep. you add plus one side rating when pushing on top of the normal benefits. Plus you get a little persistent effect. Which I think is actually really thematically good. Yeah, you, at the nice. start of each session you roll on a chart. It may be that you're followed around by a strange smell for that session or 
whatever it might be, but you know, some weirdness and a natural aura of wrongness attaches itself to your character for the duration of that session. Yes. Um, okay, so favored by the warp lets you roll twice your psychic phenomena, so it reduces the chance that you'll have something really horrible happen. Yep. Uh, coming back to those, you know, becoming the target of psychic attacks, resistant psychic techniques yep. is worthwhile. Sacrifice if you want to go down that path as well. Uh, strong-minded, which lets you re-roll failed willpower tests to resist psychic techniques. So add that to Bastion of Iron Will and you've got, you can re-roll and you get five times your PR on uh, both both rolls. Yep. Um, warp Conduit. So when you're pushing, you may spend one infamy to gain another 1d5 psi rating, but you have to add 30 to your psychic phenomena roll. Yeah. So, you know, you're already pushing. So let's just see. We'll start with... We've got an unbound summary. You're bound in the case of a sorcerer. Okay, so let's start. You say you're bound. You've got three. You can potentially get up to eight total. Uh, and you're then rolling at a total of plus 42 psychic well, No, 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 no because you're bound. So the maximum you can push is plus three. So you're starting at psi rating two. Yep. You're pushing up to five. You push or pull off your warp conduit for an extra D5. That's psi rating ten. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. So it's plus eight on top of you. You're yeah. your base one is. That's it, yeah. At a plus 40 to your... To your <laughs> phenomena test. Yeah, it's going to be pretty yeah. bad. Um, okay, so warp lock. Once per game session, you can ignore a psychic phenomenon. But the drawback is you take 1d5, unresistable, no toughness, no armor, damage. But yeah. that's, not, that's not a big thing. 1d5 damage, for, especially for a Chaos Sorcerer. Yeah. You know, to be able to just completely ignore something one time, I think it's quite good. Uh, and warp sense. So this sense is a free action. So you can see those people who disguise themselves with the warp. Yep. without actively looking for them. I'd, I'd just like to actually mention something you know, for those people who are frantically looking through their books right now. We've mentioned a couple of times a cap on Psy rating at 10. Yes. There's actually nothing in the book that says that with pushing and everything else, 10 is still the maximum you can go to. Yeah. But it does seem like that is the intent. It's just that it's not mentioned specifically in the book. Okay. So buying your Psy rating up, 10 is the limit. If you push... It doesn't say what the limit is, but I would assume they meant to say 10. I don't know. You get to Psy rating 10, you're unbound, you push to 15, you use Warp Conduit, you get up to 20, you, you, know, you, you use, plus 100 to, all your, to your rolls. You use Boon of Zinch for an extra 5. Yeah, you yeah, go. Yeah, up to 20, oh, up to what, 15? This is a game where people are ending up with, you know, okay, so my I need to roll under 130 on a D100. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I, you're just rolling for degrees of success now. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's why we're saying maximum 10, because yeah. it's the only thing which really makes sense. Yeah, but hey, always a 10% chance you'll fail the psychic powers. There is, and... If you fail with a massive phenomena absolutely guaranteed like that, it's going to really suck. That's it. <laughs> okay. All right. So a couple of things about playing a sorcerer, uh, and this is coming back to what someone mentioned before about Ancient Warrior. If you are playing a sorcerer and you are taking Ancient Warrior, consider the implications of that in the line of the Horus Heresy. So an Ancient Warrior presumably may have been at one stage a loyalist marine during the Great Crusade. Yep. And... Generally speaking, there were no psychers, or those that were there were hidden. You know, uh, and maybe, regardless of which legion you came from, the fact that you were a psyker and the emperor said, "That's not okay with me," is one of the reasons why you went to the ruinous powers in the first place. Yes, I mean, look at look at the downfall of Magnus the Red. You know, he he was trying to convince the emperor that it was worthwhile having psychic powers. He tried to psychically warn the emperor about Horus's betrayal, you know, in some ways just to prove that 
I couldn't have warned you if I wasn't psychic. So obviously we're okay, right? You know, that backfired spectacularly, yeah. um, resulting in the destruction of the, the, the Golden Thrones web gateway. But anyway, um, so but that's the thing is that, that it's a big deal, I think, for a Marine who is literally at the, at the beginning of the psychic phenomena, especially for Marines. You know, okay, astropaths existed, navigators existed in, in the Great Crusade, but the concept of a psychic Marine was at best unknown, at worst anathema. Yeah, yeah, and that's a big deal, I think, for a, for a character. That and goes and I think that it also it fits in well with depending on the legion as well, because if you're a psychic, uh, I'm going to use Emperor's Children for an example here, they valued perfection over everything else. You have a mutation that's the very opposite of perfection in their eyes. Yeah, that puts you instantly apart from the rest of your legion, and it's the same with most of the other legions as well. Psychers were considered different especially back then when they didn't have a dedicated librarian system to train these people to, to work out exactly what they could and couldn't do. Yeah. I mean, and also with Thousand Sons, there's no reason you couldn't play a sorcerer from the main book and still say you're a Thousand Sons. You just don't take the Thousand Sons sorcerer yeah. advanced career, which is a higher XP level from the Tome of Fate. Um, but you can still go off the whole thing where, you know, literally the Thousand Sons sorcerers are the only members left of their of their legion, which aren't just husks of bodies inhabiting or you know, dust inhabiting armored shells, you know, that yeah. they are a few, they're few and far between basically and have very few friends, <laughs> <laughs> which really sucks. Yeah. Um, you know, you consider that anyway. So, uh, okay. Next thing I want to talk about is once again, don't forget the importance of planning, especially if you want to go for something like exalted powers, you know, really sit down and plan your character out. I mean, we're playing yeah. black Rousseau at the moment, I think I've got I've got a chart of all the things I want to spend experience points on, of what costs more or less based upon my alignment. Yeah, and I've got to gone through and worked out I need to buy things in a particular order to get the best bang for my buck, and not be wasting experience <laughs> points on silly stuff. Have you done the same thing for your character? Absolutely. Mike? That's it. Yeah. So, like yeah. Yeah, Crusade's alignment system does require a bit of planning to, to to get around it, especially when you've got a psychic character that wants to buy special powers. Or wants to maintain a particular alignment to be able to use all those powers. Yeah. Um, and, and this comes back, last thing I want to say, comes back to what we were talking about before with the Ancient Warrior, but decide as a... I guess this applies to any Chaos Space Marine. Um, presuming, you, presuming you came from a Legion. You know, a lot of them are also from you know, war bands or... Or chapters, or, or which have fallen exactly. since, yeah. But um, are you still favoured of your Legion? Or have you decided to go your own way? You yeah. know, how does your Legion feel? I mean, you may make up a new Legion... That, or a new warband that formed, how do they feel about psychers? You know, was it the fact you, they found out you were a psyker that reads why you were cast out? You know, think about that relationship to who you, you were with originally. Yeah. Anything else you want to say on the sorcerers, Mike? I mean, you, you played one? Um, particularly, I think that covers pretty much everything. Yeah. I mean, planning is important, um, but sometimes you kind of come across a situation where you go, it would be really useful if I had X and just buy it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes things will happen and it will be well worth your effort just to simply purchase something out of the blue to help you for future adventures. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Attention, loyal servants of the Imperium. Stand by to receive orders. Okay, so this is normally our plot hook section, but there's something I want to do a little bit different today, Mike, regarding Black Crusade and plot hooks. And okay. I want, it's, it's really just a short discussion i want to get your take on something so i'm asking this out of the blue the screaming vortex is inside the warp technically technically (laughs) 
Now, I mean, okay, anything else? The Eye of Terror is inside the warp. Yes. Um, when you read books like Rogue Trader, it yeah. talks about the fact that the reason you need navigators in the warp is because direct exposure to the warp of a normal person, you know, seeing the nature of the warp, destroys them. You know, it's like a lot of psychic powers that say, for a moment you see the, you know, the warp, you take D10 corruption and such. You know, it, it's a direct exposure to the warp is... It's fatal. It's destroying, you know. So, when it comes to planning your plots and stories in the Screaming Vortex, how do you reconcile the fact that these characters are living and operating within the warp itself? Okay, technically it's not the warp. It's an interface where the warp and the real world overlap at the same place at the same time. Yeah. So... I can't really think of any real-world examples of anything even close to that happening, I suppose. Um, But, yes, there are warp storms localised within these sorts of areas where just, you know, planet might suddenly vanish or get ravaged or bits of the surface might suddenly explode with demons. Um, I suppose the main thing to remember is the fact that there aren't stars in here. There aren't you know, stars with letting off light. There's the ambient light of the warp all around you, from what I can tell. I mean, <laughs> the books are particularly vague on all of these sorts of subjects, and this it does make it really hard. Um, but it also adds an additional element as well, that you can cross from world to world without a void ship, if you happen to know the right rituals, if you happen to know a pathway between the worlds... Whatever. Yeah. And the shortest distance between two points isn't necessarily a line sort of thing. Exactly. And it also gives you the element of time as well. Because time doesn't flow in the warp in the same way it does in the real world. You know. Or in the same direction. Or in the same direction. Yeah. Exactly. Um so characters could go out of the screaming vortex and end up in a different time period from where they went in. Yeah. Um, which adds in the element of being able to take part in the Angelian Crusade or whatever you want. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I do have, going back to the audiobooks again, there's an audiobook I listened to some time ago which had a group of loyalist marines on the surface of a demon world in the warp yep. posing as trader marines, yeah. you know, interfacing with chaos cultists and slaves and the like while trying to track down a lost chapter relic, basically. Yep. Um, so, you know, he had a group, and it was literally described as, you know, the warp broiled in the skies above them and such, you know. So... I guess it's one of those things where canon can be a bit back to front on exactly what the nature of exposure to the warp is, or what yeah. part of the warp is instantly mind and body destroying, you know, or you know, what is, or what is. But so, I guess my the reason I brought this up in the product section was just to ask what considerations do you have, or would you have, when considering locales in the screen vortex, given the nature of the fact it is the warp. I mean, what would you, how would you represent that warp? In I mean, you go to. You go to a city in the Screaming Vortex. So we played Matt's game recently. We went to, uh, what's the world, world called again? Um, Sackgrave? Yeah, we went um, to Sackgrave, then we went to Cursed. Okay, so we were started from Sackgrave. Now, Sackgrave, as it was described in that game, as we played it, could be any other world in the Imperium. It was a planet. It had a landing port. We, we flew over in a ship. We landed. We interfaced with local people. We did local customs. We killed a lot of people. We got back on a ship and left. That could have been anywhere. It didn't need to, need to be in the warp. So how would you, as a GM, keep players reminded that the fact they are in the warp? On a regular basis? Well, well, here's the thing. You can't 
put it in their faces constantly because otherwise then it just becomes a part of the background scenery. Yeah. It's something that you have to bring up and play up hard every so often, but not all the time. So things like they walk into a, into the local planet and they're told, oh, there's something you have to get in the forest and they go into the forest and the forest is made out of screaming kittens. You know, it can be whatever you want. You know, things don't follow physics. They don't follow reality. It can be whatever you want. Um, as you mentioned, the sky broiling with chaos energy, perhaps things change overhead, like there's always a different planet in the sky above them, regardless of where they are or what's going on. Um, Perhaps they see space battles which aren't there. Perhaps the stars are constantly changing and perhaps there's faces leering down at them and all sorts of horrible things. Yeah. Just play it up, whatever you want. Yeah, weirdness. Weirdness. Weirdness, you know. You're, you're outside, it's daytime. You walk inside the building, it's nighttime. Yeah. You're back outside, it's daytime. Back inside the building, it's nighttime, you know. I mean, if you haven't already, pick up, seriously, pick up some of the Lovecraftian novels. Oh. You know, the, the, the Call of Cthulhu Omnibus and that sort of thing. And yeah, you just get a handle on what weird... So, you know, alien natures are when it comes to because the whole thing is that the warp is hard to describe because it's indescribable yes that's, that's the point of it is that it, it, you know it doesn't don't just think of the most horrific thing like it's all blood and skull and you know yeah I mean it's, it's there's, weirdness as well there's some good actually examples in the one of the previous um, Codex Chaos Space Marine which is a mention of a crusade done by a bunch of Imperial chapters which were deemed corrupt and they had to go on a penance into the eye of terror and it talked about some of the worlds they landed on you know one world was a giant fat man in the fetal position and that was a that was the planet um another one had you know seas of insects and and worms and all that sort of stuff you know planets made completely out of metal or completely out of flesh or completely out of plants crystal you know planets which are fire that's you know solid doesn't yeah. actually move anything you want that's it, yeah, you want. Yeah. You know, look up artwork by mc escher or hr geiger you know yes and, well hr geiger has a lot more penises than you might be used to <laughs> you're looking at the wrong geiger i think <laughs> have you looked at an alien <laughs> all right anyway so i guess what we're getting at here with the product section is just when you are designing your stories for uh for, for black crusade Remember to incorporate that weirdness aspect of the warp. Yeah. Uh, because it is something particular to the setting you won't find any other settings except for a really horrible scene in, in Road Trader. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, make sure you keep it in your game. Yeah, and I mean, also the weirdness does come into effect that sometimes planets may look completely normal, perhaps even pleasant and hospitable, but they're not. Yeah. You know, so, so play that up as well, you know. A planet where everything's all green and shiny and everything until they, you know, cut down a tree branch and suddenly blood's oozing out of it or it screams at you or whatever. Yeah. All right. No worries. Let's move on. My lord, the information you requested is now available for your review. Okay. So as you mentioned before, for our review today, we are out of Black Crusade books to review. Yeah. And so we thought we would shake it up with reviewing some other 40k properties, I guess. And, and given that we picked it up at Gen Con last year... I wanted to talk about Warhammer 40k Conquest. We yep. had promised for a while we would review it. So we've sat down and we've, we've played the game. And okay, so let's start off by saying I think that the first thing I found with this game was it's a very easy game to learn. Yeah. Very fast to learn, very quick to pick up. I, I have to agree with that. I think it's going to be a hard game to master. 
And it really comes down to... Okay, let's talk about the, the rules first, and we'll come back to our thoughts on it. So, the game basically... The, the objective of the game, ostensibly, is to control three planets that have the same resource. So you start by dealing out seven planets. Only five are revealed. Each planet has between one and three of three different resource types. Basically, we'll say a blue, a red, and a, red and a green. And in any turn, there is only one planet, which is actually being... Could be won that turn. Yeah, so you can fight battles in any of the planets. There are benefits to winning battles in those planets, like little sort of mechanical benefits. But at the end of the day, only one planet is actually up for grabs in that particular round. Yeah. Uh, so one player gets that planet. Uh, they put it into their victory pool. It's got certain resources. Once they've acquired three planets with the same resource, and as you, as you move up, as you take planets away, you reveal more of the, you reveal the other two planets. Uh, they win the game if they get all three. But there are other ways to lose the game. You know, every character has, or every, every player has a Hail Warlord, which is basically their their army's leader. And if your Hail Warlord is defeated, automatically lose the game. Yeah. You have a deck of cards, you know, basically a draw deck. If you deck the game, basically, if you draw all your cards, there's no more to draw, you automatically lose the game. So, for example, the first time Mike and I played, Mike was absolutely kicking my ass. You know, he, he'd, he'd gotten the first three planets, I think it was. was three for three. The first three planets. They didn't, you didn't have three of the same resource, though. Um, and if you got the fourth planet, you would have won the game from a resource. Yep. And just with... I, I saw sort of um, three turns from the end that I, I probably didn't have much chance of uh, turning, it turning around. around. So I decided I'm going to go for a Hail Mary, uh, just try and take his Warlord out. And so I, you know, deployed... And I made the foolish mistake of sticking my Warlord there. That's it, and I deployed... Even though I didn't need to. That's it. So I had the Dreadnought and I had the Land Raider and I was just able to deal enough damage to the Warlord to take him out in that turn before the battle was resolved and therefore I, I won that first game you know so I guess it's an interesting sort of concept where you can change tactics on the fly as such and when I say before that I think it's hard to master I think the hardest thing we're working out okay why wouldn't I just throw all my resources at the plant that's actually up for grabs this turn you know what is the mechanical benefit of putting some resources on another planet just to get that small benefit for that turn and I guess there's things like, you know, once you deployed forces to a planet, they remain there. So when the battle for that planet virtually comes up, you've got less requirement to spend resources in order to deploy more forces to that planet because you've already got forces on that planet, basically. Yeah. Plus, uh, for example, I was playing Ultramarines and uh, some of the forces I deployed had the ability to, to move my opponent's forces to other planets as well. So there was more reason to have conflicts on anything other than what's called the first planet in the game, basically. Uh, so I, I thought, you know, interesting concept. You, you thought that you enjoyed the game, Mike, when you, you yeah, played it? Yeah. yeah, like you said, it was easy to learn. It didn't take long to pick up the rules. Uh, the main trick, I suppose, is remembering what cards you've got in play yes. and what all their special rules are and how to, to use them to best advantage. Yeah, that, that's something we found. Like we, we, I mean, you had like three... In that first game, you had three supports support playing in your, in, your, in your headquarters area. And these are cards which don't actually enter the battle, but give you ongoing effects. And they usually, when this effect occurs in the game, exhaust or tap this card in order to 
do whatever. Uh, do whatever, that's it. And it was, remember, you had those particular resources in play. You know, one of them reduced the cost of putting units into play. Um, one of them affected your combat abilities, etc. You know, so it's remembering those things as well. But that's like any CCG. Yeah. You know, the more complicated it gets. I, I think that's it. Uh, if you play the same army over and over and over again, I think that you'll get the hang of that very that's it. quickly. And this thing I like is each army has a different way of playing the army. Yeah. You know, so for example, Imperial Guard are all about cheap units. Just flood the board with units because you can just get them out so quickly. They're not very effective, but you've got a lot of them. You can get them out very fast. Whereas something like the Tau, for example, is going to give you less units, but each of those units has a lot of attachments. So you can give them better gear, better armor, you know, allied options and such things that will actually support them, make them more powerful in combat. You know, and you had, I think you had one thing you played at one point, which on the card had like, four attack and maybe two wounds and by the time you'd boosted up it was like doing some like eight and six or something yeah it was uh my nurgle marines which were one attack and four wounds and by the end of it they were doing something like six attack and they no they they were doing seven attack and six wounds at the very end just before they died (laughs) to a dreadnought (laughs) to a dreadnought So anyway, so uh, yeah, different armies will play different ways. I certainly remember we caught it with one of our listeners at uh, Gen Con who had gone into the tournament straight away that was available at Gen Con. So sort of all these fresh players yeah. learning it for the first time. And he played Eldar, and he was saying that the Eldar deck seemed to be re- re- built around denying your enemy access to resources. But he, he struggled to get that concept off the, off the ground with the cards that he drew, basically. So yeah. I, I guess that, I mean... When you design a card game system, you want to make sure that the player has options every turn regardless of what's drawn. The most annoying thing is when you know, you've know you got a handful of characters that are all like five or six resources to, to, to bring into play, yet you've only got four resources, and so you're sitting there thinking, I just can't get any of these. I can't do anything. Yeah, any yeah. that's right, exactly right. So uh, I think they, they haven't really sort of you know, squared up that much. Now, I want to talk about here as well, just for those who aren't familiar... I mentioned before CCGs being collectible card games. Um, this is a bit different. So you've heard in terms of like CCG or TCG, tradable card game. The concepts of traditional games like Pokemon or Magic the Gathering are that you basically buy random packs of cards. So you know, you're hoping that you when you draw when you buy your booster pack, you get cards that are actually useful to you. And when you think about games like Magic the Gathering, where you have cards that are actually coloured if you're building a, a white deck for example and you open up a booster pack and there's okay so I've got two blacks you know a green a blue one red and a white all I've really gotten out of that potentially is one white unless I'm building a hybrid deck for example uh, so you know you, you can you can luck out you can go poorly you can get foil cards etc but end of the day when it comes to your tournament competitiveness for the most part it comes down to luck because you know, you were lucky enough to get the right cards and such. You know, you got the the Black Lotus or the Chaos Orb, that sort of stuff. Um, so what FFG have done is they developed a, what they call LCDs or living card games. And the idea with an LCG is when you buy the starter set, all the cards are predetermined, and that's the same with most of the starter sets in most games. But the difference is when you buy add-on packs or in that what they call in this system warp packs, uh, warp packs, warp packs, warp packs. Sorry. Uh, they are also predetermined as well. In fact, there's a QR code on the back of the packet. You can scan that and see exactly what cards are in that war pack before you go and buy it. Um, yep. So, therefore, the cards that you can get and play with are a known commodity. Uh, 
Yes. You know, and, and so when it comes to tournament uh, competitiveness, everybody is on a in, inverted quote commas even keel. I guess what happens with LCGs, and, and I'm not saying necessarily that FFG have done this, but I see this happen with a lot of games that are similar. There are two key problems. First off is power creep. You know, if you're a company which manufactures card games and you want people to keep buying your content, one of the best ways to do that is ensure that each expansion pack that comes out adds new options to the players that are potentially better than the old options they had. Yes. So if they want to remain competitive, they've got to keep buying that that system as such, you know. Um, and the second thing you do is you put powerful cards in your starter set, you know, that are that are really that are really good that only have, say, limited quantities of one that you don't put in booster packs. So if somebody wants to get another one of that card, if I want a second Ultramarine's Dreadnought, I've got to buy a second box set and have a starter deck of every single army, once again, I'm not going to use just so I can get a second second Dreadnought. Now, we, didn't play, we haven't played with the war packs yet. We've only played with the base box set. So I'm certainly not going to say that FFG is guilty of uh, power creep. Yeah, because I, I haven't seen that at all. You know, maybe we'll look at it again when we are 10 expansion packs down the line. They, I mean, they, they've announced so many so quickly that I suspect they were all probably made around the same time as the game anyway. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd say... They're, they're, from... just, they're just spaced out to give us a chance to get paid between between each release. Um, but I do think that maybe there are... It did seem there were some powerful cards in there that I suspect that there will, to play, there will be players out there who have a lot of money who feel that the best way to be competitive is to go and buy more starter sets and get more of that particular card. Yeah. Which is something that a player with less money can't actually achieve. Yeah. So, is it, is it pay to win, Mike? Um, I don't know. I guess we're going to have to wait and see what else comes out in the starter decks. Sorry, in the expansion decks. Yes. If, like you said, the, the Ultramarines Dreadnought, if, however, they release a, an expansion pack with Space Wolf Dreadnought, which is just as good, really they're not guilty of that because you can just buy the expansion deck. Or yeah. they might release something else which is just as good but called something different. In which case, the only reason you would do that is so that you can say, I have three Ultramarines Dreadnoughts. You know, which, you know, more more luck to them, the, the people who want to spend money on just having a particular card yeah. multiple times. Um, I mean, of course, the drawback to that system as well is that you have to build a deck... When you're building your own decks, 50 cards is the maximum. Yeah. So if I go and jam 10 Ultramarine Dreadnoughts in there, chances are I'm going to plot my seven starting cards and find, great, I've got seven Dreadnoughts and the ability to, apply, to deploy none of them yeah. because I've got, I just haven't got the resources to do so. I'm going to sit here all game looking at my hand of Dreadnoughts and the fact they're not on the board. Yeah. yeah so there is always the drawback of, of loading a deck with high-powered cards is that you just can't get them out. Yeah, definitely, but um, I, I suppose it's, we're going to have to wait and see. That really is a case of having to wait and see. Yeah. Um, I, I'm interested to see tournament results when tournaments actually start up properly, um, and we're a little bit further into it. I'd yeah, like I think they, they, they have a recent organised play day at FFGs at the headquarters in, in Roseville, Minnesota, so yeah. I'd say they must, they must have had some results from that as well. I'd be interested to see if there's any reviews around. Yeah, well, I, I'm more interested to see a, a couple of tournaments in whether there's a continuing trend of particular decks always winning. Yeah. Because, you know, that's a common bugbear with a lot of people with 40k in tournament play, that certain armies always win. Yeah, and I guess it comes out of the fact that companies like Games Workshop don't seem to do a lot of beta testing in their main player base. No. 
they probably have a, a key group of play testers. They keep it very locked up and very quiet. Yeah, know, so you they're very in house and very fluff oriented, which is good. Yeah, in some ways, um, bad for tournament players. But I mean, are they really a tournament game? Um, not really for forty k. But for this card game, obviously, yes. That's what they're aiming for. They're aiming to become a tournament play card game. Yeah. So really, I'm interested to see how it balances out and how it all looks You know, a couple of tournaments down the track. Okay. I mean, certainly one of the things that I found a little bit disappointing is the fact that it is, it is only a two-player game. Yeah. There's no real easy way to make it a multiplayer game, which I guess makes it fit more into that tournament space. Tournament games are better suited to... One on one, one on one play. Yeah. Um, I mean, even games like Magic, you can play in a circle where each person's aggressing to the next and being aggressed by the person on the other side. But the nature of the planet system here means you can't really do that. No, you, you can't. Play, deploy it either side of the same planet. Yeah. Um, but you know, that, that's just a, that's a small thing. You know, is it? Uh, I, think I guess it, I've got too many friends to play play one at a time. That's I problem. suppose you could do it if you were willing to say, okay, it's two players versus two players, and they pick allied armies. Yeah. And that way, they'd you'd play as sides, allied sides against each other. I suppose you could do it that way, but you'd have to have a little bit of a tinker well, to see if you could do it. So you're speaking about allies, I mean, one of the rules in creating decks is that there is this, basically, this circle on the back of the book which has each of the different armies. And when you're building your decks, you can take armies, or you take figures from armies on either side of your actual army. So, yeah. for example, Marines can ally with Imperial Guard or with Tau, for example. Yeah. Now, when we look through that, some of those things went, oh, you know... I think the fluff doesn't, or you know, these armies should be able to unite. Uh, it's in, difficult in the, scope, in the scope of the fluff, you know. So. It's difficult because of the circular nature of what they're put together. Yeah, but everyone's really, got to have two. As such. Yeah, everyone's got to have two, and obviously, Imperial Guard and Marines go together. So then, the question is: Do you go town or do you go elder? Yeah, for Marines. And I, and I guess the question is: Now they've got this system, I suppose that if you've got a group of friends, you could say, "Look, I want to. I really want to build a." you know, a, a space marine elder army. You know, everyone goes, oh, we don't care. That's not in the rules. Go ahead and do it. Not, it's not tournament play. Obviously, it's fun home play. I guess the question is, would do the rules support armies built that don't follow that particular structure? Yeah. You know, if you had elder and marines in the same deck, would, would you Would it get, be exceptionally powerful? Yeah, or otherwise, would you have it the fact you just can't get cards out because they're not made to give the resources required to deploy those cards, for example? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. All right. So, but overall, what we played, I think we enjoyed. And um, you said the artwork is fantastic. The artwork is fantastic. A lot of it's artwork from their books as well. Like you know, we saw the cover of Tome of Fate in there, for example. Oh, yeah, for, for my uh, for my flame is a zinch, that's it, which yeah. did absolutely nothing. <laughs> well, they they died in a hail of hail of bolter shells. Yeah, and they cost me a lot of points to put out, to put out a lot of flamers. <laughs> yeah, that's it. But I I, I think we, we enjoyed the game. We played again. Yeah, probably definitely. a few others to it as well. And yeah, definitely. I think maybe when we've got some future time, we can look at we get out the war packs as well. Like, so we've already I've already got two now, and the third one is just just been about to be released. So, you know, we should have a look at those and see if we think they're going to work. I mean, one thing I noticed is that all the warlords in the main box have the same seven starting cards, seven starting resources. Yeah. So if they bring out new warlords in future packs, which have a different starting amount. I'm going to see how what effect that has on the game as well. Yeah, yeah. So, how many resource points out of ten are you going to give Conquest? Well, if you're someone who likes card games and you like 40k, which obviously you do if you listen to this podcast, I'd say it's definitely worth getting, and I'd probably give it an eight. If you're just a casual player uh, and 
I don't know, for the average person who isn't hugely into the 40k IP and is just after a card game, maybe not as much. It's, you certainly get a lot from, from being able to go, yeah, my Dreadnought just trounced the hell out of a whole bunch of flightmates. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a bit hard to say. But I'd say eight. For, right. for yeah, no, I, I'd agree with that, definitely. I mean, it, when you compare it to something like Warhammer 40k Dark Millennium, oh, it, it, it is... <laughs> far and away superior. I mean, yeah, that was Games Workshop's attempt, a card game which they're traditionally terrible at. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, this is a company which started off making card games, yeah. I think. Uh, 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 and card games and board games. Card games and FFG... If you played FFG board games and card games, you'll see that the production quality is amazing. You know they yeah. they do nice card stock. You know fantastic accessories as such. You know, it is yeah. a high quality production, and certainly that that's been seen through in Conquest as well. Definitely. So and it's cheap. You know it's just not expensive. Like I think it's uh, I can't remember what we pay for it at Gen Con, but you're not you're not paying like ninety dollars for a, for a, a game or as such. No, so. you're not. I mean. I mean you can get definitely get a lot of play out of it, and for a two-person game, certainly it will give you yeah. lots of entertainment. And a fast game, you know, play it, play it in an hour and a half. You know, yeah. you don't, Easy. You know, yeah, you're not sitting there for five hours trying to get a get a result. Yes, it's not magic. That's it. All right, well, let's move along. Ignorance is a blessing. The data you requested is unavailable. All right, so for our final discussion topic for today, um, normally we have quite a few notes here, and I've decided this one a bit more of an open topic for you and I just to chat about yep. and, and record our thoughts. So I, I sensibly called this topic writing, or running an epic campaign, and originally our hope was to try and get Matt onto this show as well, our friend Matt, to talk about his game, because it's really sort of an, the essence of what I wanted to talk about. Unfortunately, schedules didn't line up, so uh, we'll have to do it ourselves, but uh, hopefully we can have Matt in our future show as well. Yep. Uh, so, what I mean by an epic campaign? What I'm talking about here is a game which spans more than you would normally look for in a regular role-playing game. You know, it, it may be multiple generations, it may be uh, over long distances, it may include a lot of downtime. At the end of the day, you're not playing a consistent step-by-step narrative. You're playing vignettes, smaller scenes in a in a larger production. Yeah. And okay, so what I want to start by by relay this back to Matt's game we spoke about earlier in the show. So uh, let's start off with so we had our first session and in our first session our characters met with a Chaos Warlord in the Screaming um, Vortex who basically has come to us in order to perform a, a huge ritual. And, and this ritual it's similar to a meta endeavor in uh, Road Trader. Yeah. That in that it's actually a number of smaller compacts to go out and do each of these major things. And then when they're all done, come back and do one bigger compact to sort of unite all the results together for some great reward. So I won't go too much into the detail. It's no one else here is playing the game. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the, first, the last session we played, which was our second session, was us pursuing one of those compacts, one of the smaller compacts. You mentioned before it's a local compact. Yep. The essence of the compact was rebirth. We were told to, you know, find a world, a, a, a person, you know, find something and build a concept of uh, death and rebirth around that particular thing. And we had an op- other options, and the option we opted for was an imperial world in the Ascalon sector, a mining world, which had been cut off or, you know, due to, due to bureaucratic error, no food had been sent there for some time, the populace had turned to cannibalism, the Imperials had basically turned up and written off 
the world as a loss now, and it had pretty much, you know, they had cannibalized themselves to death, effectively, that the world was now a lost world. Yep. And so we thought, okay, we are going to go here, we're going to reestablish a colony, we are going to populate it, we're going to get the mining operations going again, and what we're going to do is covertly use that, like, you know, get our claws into the Imperium, create bureaucratic nonsense to ensure that this world is brought back into the Imperium again, but that the materials that the world sends are corrupted. You know, th- th- something about the nature of what they do, the mind, the, the mind ore is, is foul or in some way will corrupt the machines of the forge worlds they're sent to. And, and also, when we finally do launch our Black Crusade, if we choose to go through the Ascalon sector, we now have potentially a base of operations. Now, all of that was done in a four or five hour gaming session. So think about the fact that, you know, recruiting the people, getting to the world, like leaving the, leaving the screen vortex is a big thing in itself to get to the Ascalon sector, infiltrating the bureaucracy of the administratum, getting the people onto the world, setting it up so it's actually self-sustaining, um, creating trade routes to get the ships going again. You know, these are all major things and we did it all in a five hour session. And in doing that, we didn't have long drawn out role-played conversations where we recruited each individual person or co-opted an individual administrator. You know, we sort of reduced it to, um, this is what I want to do and this is how I want to do it. So, you know, I'm going to infiltrate the administrator in this way. And at the end of the day, the, the GM then decided, okay, that can be done with a series of roles. We might play out a particular scene that is a turning point yeah you know or, or pivotal moment but at the end of the day what i really want is a, a montage of what your character is doing and if i'm happy that that all works together then i can say that you've achieved that that actual outcome so in this game you know we have got this world up and going we've got the traders up and going we've got the corruption placed in there you know and that is a that's a big deal it's something that probably took several months uh, in game to actually do that and I guess that when we look back on what our characters have done, we can say, wow, we actually spent, you know, the best part of half a year probably setting up this uh, this mining operation in order to benefit us in the future. That was a, that was a big endeavor. Uh, certainly bigger than we would normally think in a normal role-playing session. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Mike, you played the game as well. And Matt asked me afterwards how I felt about it. What were your thoughts on the game? Um, I think for what he's aiming for, it works perfectly well. Um and sometimes this will work very well for any game where there's a large endeavour that you want the characters to do something. Not so much to do, but more as a means to an end. You don't want to have to go through a whole rigmarole of getting hold of a ship if all you want them to do is get the ship and go somewhere else. But you still have to dedicate the time to doing it and you can do the important scenes involved in it. But you don't want to have to go through getting a crew, getting enough food for the crew, working out the fuel, talking to, you know, corrupted Magos to service the engines, doing trade compacts to get the fuel, all this sort of garbage. You don't want to do that scene by scene. So sometimes doing a big montage to put it together like that works perfectly well. And I think that, yeah, it worked good. It it was good. I mean, mean, let's talk about the opposite for a second. If you've been following our Dark Heresy game via Roll20, so we have now played two sessions. We have, the time that has passed is maybe 24 hours in the game. Uh, You know, we've played through 
the scenes of travel. You know, literally you're in an auto carriage driving from place to place and here's the conversation we have. You're on a lift going between levels of the hive, having conversations, making deals, etc. So we're literally playing out, for the most part, every minute of the characters' lives. Yeah. Uh, well, I think the best way of looking at it is we've played 24 hours of gameplay and it's taken us six hours to do that. Yes. So for every hour of gameplay, we've played four hours of our characters' lives. At that rate, if you wanted to do a seven-month endeavour, you're looking at two-month solid gameplay. Yeah. That's just not really viable. Exactly right. So, but in this, in the case of the Dark Heresy game, I see this as great character development time. Definitely. And at some point, there's going to be a thing where someone says, hey, we need to get onto a ship and fly somewhere else. It's going to take three weeks, and I'm not going to be playing out every hour of that three-week and this is something, and I know you've actually mentioned this about your um, Scion game. Yeah. That the characters like to play out every single interaction. And while it's great for character development early on, eventually you need some downtime so that things can happen, so that time can progress, so that characters can actually spend that XP and develop. You know, someone doesn't go from being a 30 pound weakling to being, you know, a huge. You know, Atlas, Charles Atlas, yeah. in the space of a couple of weeks, just because they've earned loads of XP. Certainly with the Scion game, the problem I found is that I gave the group what I thought was a very large task to do. Yeah, they, need, they needed to acquire 13 different objects, and they had basically eight months to do it. And I think they're probably about halfway through the list now, and the total time that's passed is probably about three weeks yeah. in games since it started, you know, so... They're not under time pressures, but the problem is, particularly in that game where the characters have supernatural abilities, which means they don't need to sleep. You know, they are literally doing every single. You know, we don't we don't want to let an hour pass. We're not doing anything. You know, we're either traveling or we're actively pursuing one of these goals, and you know, it's it, it causes problems. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I mean, I've had to sort of rethink that. So that the time pressure is no longer a part of my game because they know they're going to achieve it. It's now a case of. Uh, well, it's not a case of how quickly can we do this, it's can we do this or not? Can we find this missing item, the next missing item on the list as such? Yeah. Uh, but coming back to Epic Campaigns, in this case we're trying to write games where we don't focus on every minute of the game. What we focus on is the the major points of character development. Yeah. So, okay, let's look at another way. So we're playing, we're playing the game, uh, we've got our four characters. The first session we play, we met up, our characters met for the first time. Uh, in the second session, a period of time has passed. We'd travelled a distance. We'd spent months on the same ship. Is it realistic then for us to uh, assume that our characters have learned things about one another, you know, to, to have them tri- chat with each other more genially, despite the fact we haven't role-played through the, the development of the characters' relationship with each other, basically? I think so. Unless someone specifically says, my character keeps to their cabin and they don't interact with anyone... I think it's safe to say that they've been interacting to some degree. And if, if you're the GM and you're worried about that, throw in a, a minor scene where everyone's in whatever got passes for a rec room yes. having a discussion about something, maybe a debate or an argument or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the cracks we're going for here with an epic campaign is the idea that you would write a story that is beyond the scope of a normal gaming campaign. Yeah. You know, it, it's years in the making... Um, you know, major events happen and you then break it down into a series of smaller components and say, I want to play through just this part. 
you know, and then and then there's this part, just this part, and then the time in between, I'm going to let the players do what they want. You know, I'm going to give them, and, and way Matt Matt does this is he says, okay, for this downtime period, similar to what we talked about the passive blue booking, you've got so many downtime actions. He even did things like the fact when we're on a ship, the characters um, where they had it, where they did or didn't have trade voidsmen actually affected how many actions they got because when you're on a ship, if you've got trade voidsmen, you've got a better use of your time, I guess, you know. Yeah. Um, in any case, uh, you know, but then he also said, okay, but you're able to acquire this knowledge. Here's a large XP award. You, know, you don't need to sit there and justify why you bought these things because I can just say that you were doing that sort of practice or that personal development while you're on the ship as such. So yeah, certainly give big breaks between those um, individual encounters, individual a- action scenes, but fill that with or ha- encourage the players to fill that with stories of what they've done, how they developed, you know, they're still playing characters after all. They're not just playing a set of stats. They, they, want, they want to be able to characterize and develop their own characters and their own storylines too. Yeah. So allow them to do that in the scope of your game as well. I mean, Mike, have you ever run a similar sort of campaign to this in terms of the, the size and scope of the game? Not really. Um, I've run campaigns which have lasted for a long period of time. But they were still like, sort of focused on the, the meta components of the Kind of. I mean, I suppose the difference is in the ones I would run, it would be a series of shorter campaigns linked together by a common store, common thread. And there might be a six-month downtime period between campaign A and campaign B. Which, well, sorry, session A and session B, we'll call them. Yeah. Or section, or whatever you want to say. Um, but at the end of the day, like each individual adventure was still, you know, fairly tight. So, no, not really. Yeah, I mean, I relate it back almost to, we've played a few times recently, the Game of Thrones role-playing game by Green Ronan. Yeah. where there's a large number of things that happen in the game that are triggered on like a monthly basis. Yeah. So if you have a household in the game, you have monthly household upkeep. You know, you can elect, we're going to build a castle. And that building a castle may take 30 months. Yeah. You know, so I guess in some ways the game encourages you to basically say, okay, well, our family is doing this. That's going to take so long. So let's just focus on the key points that happen during that, that particular thing and we'll move on to the next step in our in our development. You know, so... Yeah. I think almost there's a discussion we're going to have in our next episode that's triggered by uh, a player question. It would also work in it as well, and that is about player-made systems. You know, when you've got downtime, you can build systems around that players then get to, I, I guess, utilize that system. Like the um, managing uh, colonies in the in the Road Trader books from um, Stars of Iniquity. Yeah. You know, where you've got the system managing colonies, you've got that sort of meta plot where, that, where you can't control the development of something outside of your characters over the long term. But I think certainly that, that epic campaigns have a pretty good payoff as well. Oh, definitely. You know, Matt, I know Matt, certainly with our game, plans the payoff to be the Black Crusade. Yeah. You know, He certainly expects that within the space of five to seven games you plan to run, that a character will probably attain um, apotheosis or, or something like those lines, or multiple characters may as well, yeah. you know, and go straight to the Black Crusade and, and play out that system as well. So yeah. in what is relatively short number of games yeah definitely you know, I mean I think that's also an advantage of running this sort of epic campaign is you don't have to keep it at this sort of epic level where it's you know short vignettes you can say this works for any system you know you might be playing D&D and say well I really want them to do a set of adventures based around this but they need to be 12th level I don't want to have to play through levels 1 to 12 but I also don't want to just start them at level 12 you can do this same sort of thing and it works 
same sort of way here with Black Crusade. You might want to say, I want to run a Black Crusade, but I don't want to just start characters off at the start of a Black Crusade. I want to go through the, the sections it takes leading up to it and then start the adventure at a bit more of a slower pace yeah. from the start onwards. I mean, Black, Black Crusade characters, when they reach that level, probably have a number of people under them. Yeah. You know, there's rules for managing your lieutenants and that sort of thing. And so having played the scenes where you met that person or at first you know, cowed them into into compliance as such, are character building as well. Yeah, definitely, so. and it can work the other way as well. You might play through at a slow pace up until the Black Crusade launches, then decide to run it on this sort of epic scale where you don't have to focus on every single battle over every single planet, yeah. where you can just sort of, you know, make it go a bit more fast, a bit, bit looser. Yeah, leave the minutiae of the day lies behind you. Know, this, yeah. different, this different prince doesn't stop to... Have a conversation over breakfast. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He's not worried about bartering over the price of, you know, a new sword. Yeah. All right. So this is something to consider anyway. I think that epic campaigns can be quite good, quite fun for a, a mature group, you know, and can be, I guess, a good way to break up your standard gaming group as such. So you've got, you know, you've, you've just played a long, intense, cathartic campaign of heavy character development. Let's play a shorter campaign where just major stuff happens over a short period of time. Everybody feels like, wow, that was impressive. Then we'll go back to the, the deep emotional role-playing experience afterwards. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, get on to closing out the show, shall we? Yes. All astropaths in the choir chamber. Message incoming. All right. So before we close out the show, we normally do a little community section. Um, not a lot this, this week. First off, I want to thank everybody who has you know, recently and in the past sort of endorsed us and reviewed us, but things like iTunes. Couldn't see any particular new reviews. I actually looked through a whole bunch of countries this time to try and catch up on any I might have missed, but didn't see any news. So if you do have a chance, please do you know, rate us and review us on iTunes. We appreciate every rating and review that we get. Yep. Um, also, we had a email from uh, Matthew in the last couple of weeks uh, regarding his Only War campaign. Uh, we had a chat, and it's Matt, Matt's idea for... Sorry, sorry, Matthew, I don't know if he goes by Matt. Uh, his idea for... His game basically involved... His players took things off the rails as such, and they wanted to play the game in a different way, so he's acquiesced, and part of that involves designing a, a, a new system for managing what the players want to do. So we thought that uh, Matthew's idea was, was significant enough that it actually was, you know, deserved a whole conversation topic. So yeah. rather than discussing it right now, we're actually going to defer it to our next episode as well. Yeah, which so. is an only war episode anyway. Exactly. I think we'll fit well with the, the discussion as it is. Yeah. Uh, okay, so if you do want to contact us, if you do want to contact us, there's many ways you can do it. Uh, first off, through our website, which is www.grimdartpodcast.com. Our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash grimdartpodcast. Our Google Plus page, which is plus.google.com slash plus sign grimdartpodcast. We've got our Twitter, at Podcast. Our email, which is show at grimdartpodcast.com. There's the forums we use at darkrain.org slash community. Uh, and I actually also did pass a thanks on to uh, Messiah side from Dark Rain, who has gotten in contact with us again and is doing a new website for us, which we hope to be able to, to unveil shortly. Yep. Uh, also, there's our voicemail link, which you'll find on our website. On the right-hand side, you'll see it says send voicemail if you want to ask us a, an audio question or give us audio comments. And also, don't forget our Drive Through RPG link, which you can find through our website or our Facebook page. If you are buying PDF books, you know, please help support both the game producer and us by uh, using our affiliate link. Uh, okay, so coming up in episode 35, which, as you mentioned, is an only war episode, 
Uh, we're going to talk about the fear and insanity system. Uh, we're going to do the minister and priest as a, uh, a career option. Uh, talk about Matthew's idea of playmate systems. Yep. And once again, because we've also knocked out all of the, uh, the only war books, we're going to do a review of Warhammer 40k Relic, uh, which is another FFG board game. So we'll see yes. how that one goes. Uh, anyway, we're looking forward to that one, and uh, we're looking forward to chatting to you again. And uh, Mike, unless anything else you've got, I will say thank you for this evening, and we will see you on the next show. I'll speak to you on the next show. Yep, see you later. All right, take care, and we will speak to you soon. This podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Games Workshop or Fantasy Flight Games. Warhammer 40,000, Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade, Only War, Eternal Crusade, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop Limited. Fantasy Flight Games is a trademark of Fantasy Flight Publishing Inc. All other materials are trademark and or copyright of their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grimdark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music comes from Mibios Musicali. Music.mibio.com. <laughs>